Conserve might not be the the project with the biggest business opportunity for Cisco, but uh, for sure it's going to be the one that saves the most lives. For some people, that sound you're hearing will trigger memories of evenings spent on a lakeside, accompanied by nothing more than a beer and a barbecue. Some will think of a day at the seaside, or perhaps an afternoon fishing for rainbow trout. For others though, it brings back memories of something much more devastating. No, well, <laughs> when I walked out, and you, you know that moment where you, you know something bad happened. When we actually got into the property, um, it was very strange, the, whilst the flooding water was going down as we got to our house, which was obviously on a slightly higher level, and the UPVC doors had held the seals, but the flood water was actually coming in through the air bricks and up, bubbling up through the floor, and we could hear the fizzing of the electrics because they were all underneath and they were in the water. So I woke up in the morning, uh, could hear loads of people outside chatting and everything, and I was like, what's going on? So five o'clock in the morning, I've walked out and... Um, my car's in sort of two feet of water. The storm drains just couldn't cope. So it, it literally, it, it took a matter of, I would have said about an hour for it to fill up. And then there was there was sort of the best part of three and a half feet of water at its, de- at its deepest point. Um, and the, the drains had all got clogged up with litter as well. So that didn't, that didn't help at all. And it just sat there and carried on rising like a bath. Um, and it, as it came in the property, it just came in. There was nothing we could do to stop it. And we didn't have anything, and not even like a spare set of clothes because everything went. Um, and it, you wake up in the morning and think, oh, I'll put some clothes on. I have nothing. And it's, it's that difficult. It's the frustration of, I don't have a fridge, I don't have... I mean, we were lucky because at the time we had some savings, and I think in the first week we spent £3,000 just gone. So, you know, buying a fridge. Um, we managed, luckily, to get some temporary combination, buying clothing, buying cat beds, buying food, and I don't think people realise the impact that that has. The UK is no stranger to floods. According to DEFRA statistics published in July of this year, just under 10,000 flood warnings have been issued since January 2006. On top of that, there have been 423 severe flood warnings, which are used to indicate when there is a danger to life, as well as the human cost, including the huge upheaval caused to people's lives. These natural disasters put massive additional strain on the economy. A report published earlier this year by the UK's Environment Agency estimated the cost of the winter floods of 2015 to 2016 at £1.6 billion. £513 million of that was shouldered by businesses in the UK, and a further £350 million impacted residential properties. And these figures pale in comparison to the amounts that insurers face in claims following flood events. Over the years, huge amounts have been spent on flood defences to protect vulnerable areas. The Thames Barrier in London is just one multi-million pound example. Meanwhile, predictions and flood warnings from the Met Office and other government agencies and departments go a long way to lowering the impact of our swollen rivers. But that isn't the whole story. When you look into these this, uh, this flood damages, you realise that there are so many things that we could have saved if we acted faster. My name is uh, Nick Rissos. I'm the Director of Innovation for Cisco in Europe, Middle East and Africa. So if we take the assumption that we cannot stop the floods, 
The floods are not happening just because of weather, not just because of the climate change. The floods are happening because of uh, of people building in floodplains, and there are many, many things behind it of 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 what uh, you know why why the floods are there. But when you look into the damages, it's you see some very interesting elements. Um, you see that there are a lot of things, a lot of elements, a lot of vulnerable elements that we could have stopped getting damaged before the water really reached them. So what actually happens in the event of a serious flood? Doug Sterling is the head of the Scottish Multi-Agency Resilience Training and Exercise Unit. His unit brings together Scotland's fire, police and ambulance services and is the only fully operational co-located tri-service unit in the UK. He says that working together effectively is the best way to overcome the challenge of situational awareness that typically faces first responders in a disaster situation. The first thing you're trying to do is, how bad is it? What's going to make it worse? What can I do to stop making it worse? Now, what do I need, now need to do to rescue or return to normal? And it's kind of, it's grabbing a situational awareness is the biggest challenge to every responder in an emergency. And then identifying what the biggest vulnerabilities are, because that's how you would prioritise your resources. When approaching a situation, response groups are separated into Category 1 and Category 2 responders, with Category 1 typically made up of blue light services, and Category 2 usually consisting of private sector organisations, including utility companies and other third parties. As you might expect, Category 1 responders organise the bulk of coordinated effort in response to a flood, and this group can itself be broken down into three further categories. William Wu, an Innovation Insight lead at Cisco, explains... And you know the timer is very, very critical during these flooding events. And in a split second, uh, the incident could largely evolve into a different status. And that really requires, uh, that really requires the, the emergency services will be able to respond very quickly and also accurately. So that enforces those responders to form into a very different hierarchy structure in terms of the gold, silver and uh, bronze command. And gold command, as you would imagine that and in, the, in, the, in a critical event, and they are in charge of the overall picture of the whole event. And they, they commission the lower level of the responders to be able to act on the, uh, the right activities and to make the right decisions uh, in, in, the, in the events. In order for this system to work, Rapid communication and access to accurate real-time information is key. But when you're using a boat to navigate what used to be a town's high street, and long hours of stormy weather have knocked out your usual networks, maintaining contact and information access becomes even more difficult. It's exactly these challenges faced by first responders that an Innovate UK-funded project called Conserve aims to tackle head-on. Here's Nick Chrysos again. Today in UK when it floods every year, it, sti it still has an average of four hours for the reaction time on floods. Um, this means that when a flood happens, the police has to certify that this is a flood. They need to call people into a room. They need to sit down and make the first action, average about four hours from the time that the first water appeared. Four hours, it doesn't mean that the, the water is in a different place. It can be in a different city. Taking that into consideration, we thought we must be able to solve this. Conserve was not designed to change anything. 
which is kind of actually at the crux of what Conserve did. Conserve was designed to enhance and speed up already existing processes. And I think that's something that's quite unique. My name is Roy Donaldson, and I'm a technical solutions architect working for Cisco in the UK and Ireland. Many of the other projects that we've worked upon have actually been trying to actually do things differently, change technologies. Whereas what we found with Conserve was that um, many of our um, great public sector bodies in both the emergency services and local authorities here had well-practiced, well-trained procedures for actually handling actually flooding. But what they didn't have was they didn't have technology behind them. And this is really what Conserve brought to them. Indeed, what Roy is saying, as Doug Sterling said earlier, is that this project wasn't so much about doing different things as doing things differently. The aim of Conserve, which is part of Cisco's Country Digital Acceleration Programme, was to provide a tool with which Category 1 responders could speed up and streamline their response to a flooding situation. And if you think about it, if you've got a, a, a river flooding in real time and you've actually been presented with, um, you know, 200 Excel spreadsheets with lots of different data sets that people then need to read and manually access. You can see the amount of time it takes actually to, to pull all that data together. And what we want to do was use our technology to automate all of that. So effectively in an instant, anyone could actually pull that data together and see actually what was happening in real time. Being able to visualize that data um, was fundamental because we could actually then take those data sets and enhance the existing processes and procedures that our local authorities and emergency service have already. And this allowed us to be able to actually pull up video cameras down the side of rivers in real time based upon GPS information to be able to show people the flooding live as it was occurring. Data virtualization technology was a key aspect of the Conserve project and it was used to enable disaster response teams to quickly access live and historical data about the flood situation they're faced with. Working on Conserve along with Cisco was Leonardo, an Italian technology company specialising in the aerospace, defence and security sectors, as well as software startup Bronze Labs and the University of Strathclyde. Leonardo and Bronze Labs worked together particularly closely on developing the applications that first responders would ultimately be using. The aim was to develop a tool that would improve situational awareness for those first on the scene and those directing their efforts. I'm Adrian Dimbeline. I'm the, the project manager at uh, Bronze Software Labs. Bron Bronze Labs' role was to provide the situational awareness to the, the boots on the ground, as it were. So working with the another consortium partner, Leonardo, they had the workflow architecture which sat on Cisco hardware and their system would take in alerts and data sets from various sensors in and around the area and we would feed this information to the people on the ground, the, the first responders, the flood wardens and any other stakeholders that this information would be useful to. They would do something with that information so it could be action a job such as put some flood defences up or put some sandbags out or something of that nature and then that information would then be fed back into the Leonardo system to update the situational awareness for what you'd call gold, silver and bronze command. The people that had a strategic overview of the situation but they 
might necessarily not be near the area itself. Adrian and his team were essentially building a communication bridge between all those who might be involved in detecting and responding to a flood situation. And what we delivered on the project was a suite of applications. Uh, there was one application for uh, people on the ground, citizens. Um, they, they could feed information and situa situational awareness into the Leonardo portal. And we also built a mobile working application which had a tactical map overlay displaying data uh, fed to us from Leonardo. Uh, so we were, we were the connection between the people on the ground and, and the, the brains of the, um, the brains of the situation which was the Leonardo SC2 platform. And the fact that the tool would need to function in a disaster situation also meant there were certain usability factors that had to be taken into consideration from the get-go. Yeah, the, the main challenges are um, keeping it simple. Um, if you have a lot going on, particularly in, in a flood scenario where people might need rescuing um, and technical items need deploying, such as, as flood defences, and you're asking somebody to fill in something digitally um, rather than calling somebody up, um, you're, you're imposing on their time um, so that the forms which had to be filled in for the citizen point of view were kept very simple and the, the forms for the responders carrying out actions were kept very simple as well. Um, simplicity was the key. Being able to involve citizens and people on the sharp end of any flood situation was a key part of the conserve project. In a flood situation, water is often travelling a lot faster than the people trying to stem its flow. Adrian explained that many of the communities at risk of flooding in Scotland are in remote and isolated areas, and as such need to be supported towards self-sufficiency and resilience as much as possible. With this in mind, the team brought in Doug from SmartU, who we heard from earlier. My impressions when I first got there was that it was being led by academia, and industry were looking to get a prototype based on the academic research, um, but actual fact is they were looking at providing lots of data, but actually weren't able to contextualise it for a commander's point of view. So it was very illustrative, and you could see that they were trying to give uh, a commander a view of what areas in, in, that they were policing or, or responding to fire, what was red, what was amber, what was green, and what was likely to be red and amber, etc. in the next hour or two hours, based on water levels taken from a whole raft of new sensors that they'd developed, which give you a fantastic picture, of, and it was very visual. So in a control room, you could see that. But what it didn't do was it didn't tell you what that meant to you. So in respect of, um, they would be looking at, for me, uh, somewhere that was green zone, if it had a care home or a hospital with intensive care, anything that has vulnerable people, um, high value property, um, bits that were part of the national infrastructure, if those areas were green, but in two to three hours they'd like to be amber or red, that would probably be more impactive to me and I would want to be looking to get my resources there than cornfields, whilst, okay, the farmer's going to be pretty cheesed off about it, but is there threat to life, is there greater threat to property, is there infrastructure involved in that, and if there isn't, then I can quite happily let that stay red. Um, and it was, it was other things along those lines is, we've got finite resources, and when you've got things such as floods, it tends to be over vast areas, so it's about getting our, the right people in the right place at the right time. The point Doug makes about context is crucial, and it proved invaluable to the team developing the suite of conserve applications. 
these tools were already providing intelligence and guidance based on reams of historical data about previous floods, as well as live information provided by sensors on the ground. But with Doug's guidance, it was possible to take the situation data already been provided by the app and overlay it with additional contextual information about at-risk areas and high-priority locations. This would help responders make a more clearly informed decision about how, where and when to deploy their resources. On top of this, Doug was able to put the conserve team in touch with commanders from the fire, police and ambulance services. And they came with their own list of recommendations for the tools being developed. Does it, does it download the information when you're offline? Because up in the north there's poor communications in some of the areas. Um, what's the battery life look like? Is it waterproof? Is it user friendly in the rain? Do you have to be covered? Do you use a pen? Do you use your finger? Um, Lots to consider. An office or a workbench is needless to say not quite the environment that a lot of first responders can expect when they call into work. This opportunity to collaborate with Doug and his commanders was invaluable for all involved. Your dashboard, if you like, the information that you're displaying and your, your various algorithms that underpin that, that has to be user-led. My name is Robert Atkinson and I'm an academic at the University of Strathclyde in Glasgow. There's no point in designing a tool to help um, decision makers, an intelligent decision to support tool. There's no use in designing such a tool if it doesn't meet the user's needs. So it was vital for us to, to get their perspective on the information that they needed and how they would like it to be represented. Project Conserve started to identify, I think, that actual fact, academia, industry and the emergency services should collaborate really early, at the early planning stages. Because that product at the end then, if it's properly informed and then it's properly tested by the emergency services, it's got to be sellable to other emergency services, not only in the UK, but further afield. Just as we've heard on previous macro episodes, developing use cases and collaborating effectively when the sensitive data involved comes with its own challenges. Cisco's Nick Chrysos and Roy Donaldson explain. We, we actually had a, a stakeholders meeting uh, about in the middle of the project. We had a stakeholders meeting in which we invited the, the, the Scottish Water, we invited uh, the Glasgow City Council, all the, uh, the information governance people to discuss about how do we get access to the data. And um, up to that point, we assumed that uh, information would be available uh, in, a, in a, you know, in, in a reasonable sense. We we're going to sign an NDA and we're going to be able to have access to the data. Until actually we had a presentation from the information governance for the city when he presented to us what this data could do to a city. So it's the first time that somebody uh, presents to us not about what is the power of uh, the data, but what can be damaging about exposing this data. Yeah, I definitely would say actually some of the you know some of the privacy around this data was you know quite you know sensitive to many of the organisations we worked as partners with here. Um, you know we we were fortunate in some respects in that the Cisco technology we'd um, selected to utilize for this allowed us to tap in to those private data sets in a very secure manner. Um, allowed us to actually anonymize some of those data sets so we could gain access to the information 
to assist people in those emergency environments, but tried to make sure we actually maintained the privacy of those data sets so we didn't expose people to any other concerns. Uh, for example, you know, he gave us examples that if uh, if we give you the hydraulics of the city and you are able to calculate where are the places that things can can flood, then you can destroy dramatically the the real estate market uh, for this for these specific areas because you are going to introduce information that at the moment people think is 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 random. Um, insurances do try to to build these kind of patterns, but we're talking about here a, a much more specific specific kind of formation. And uh, at that point is where we realized that this information will not become easily available. And it was a major turn for the project. As fundamentally, there's, there's a lot of challenges around actually flooding data. Um, a lot of flooding data today is still held privately. And as you can imagine, actually, some of these um, flooding data can have implications on you know the value of people's houses and whether houses transactions can actually go through or not. Um, we believe actually uh, um, we need to actually provide access in a sensitive manner to some of the secure data, but also actually some of the other data feeds could be opened more. The, the more open these data feeds are, the more information we can give to these responders in real time as they attend scenes. I have to say, this is a stakeholders meeting that uh, that is not easy to, to forget. And since then, Every project that we have done that requires this kind of sensitive information, we now know that we need to discuss it early and we need to to be much more um, cautious about what we are planning to do. Lessons learned. Indeed, as a result of this project, Cisco developed a new process of establishing a trust and privacy committee to ensure sharing of data is absolutely safe, secure and compliant. This would go on to govern how similar cases are handled in all other Cisco innovation projects. Finally, with all the relevant pieces of the puzzle in place, it was possible to test Conserve as a proof of concept. The testing took place in Scotland and was supported by feedback loops with potential end users. And what was perhaps most striking about the results was the broad potential of the solution being demonstrated. Roy Donaldson. Um, I think we provide a you know, really good example of, of, of the art of possible of what could be done. You know, when we went and actually spent time with all these organisations, they do a great job today, but a lot of what they do today is ma- very manual and very paper driven. And what we were able to show them was what could actually the art possible be if we actually automated a lot of the behind the scenes actually tasks that they were doing already. Uh, we had some great feedback from many of these organizations who actually had us into their offices to see what we we're putting together. Adrian from Broms Labs. As this project was um, just a proof of concept, but I'd say it was successful. The, um, the simplified data that was being sent out to people and back into um, the system for a strategic overview is um, better than what currently exists, which is phone calls and bits of paper and stuff scribbled on the, the back of arms, uh, for example. So information, even if it's a simple yes, no, this is here, that's over there, is better than what currently exists, which is nothing. Um, And so it it adds real value if you need to look at something uh, strategically. The the benefit of of the apps that we built as well is we could also track resources um, for resources. We'll 
we'll use people as, as an example. So if you have um, first responders on the scene being fed information by these digital mobile devices, we can follow them and update them on their situation uh, in, in real time. For Doug and his team at SmartU, the benefit of Conserve was not just in showing the possibilities of what technology can do for situational awareness and disaster response. It also exemplified what can be achieved when people from across industry and academia work together more closely. The only thing I would say is Project Conserve, my experience of it was it was a well worthwhile experience. The commanders that were involved in it felt it was well worthwhile. We all thought we would have got more out of it on all sides had we been engaged at the really earliest part of the planning. But without things like Project Conserve, the emergency services haven't got the time, haven't got the finance, and haven't got the energy, I'm afraid, to be able to pull together academia and industry without these kind of projects. So they're vital, and if anything is going to change the world, it is access earlier to these kind of projects. So what next for Conserve? In many ways, given how different the project has been from other innovation projects, this is largely uncharted territory. The University of Strathclyde's Robert Atkinson. What was uh, a little bit different was the, the involvement of many other public sector actors, such as police, fire brigade, uh, many of whom were giving their time for free to come and meet with us and discuss with us various issues. Um, Quite often an innovation project is to help one or two companies productize something very quickly, um, you know, to, to increase, to increase their, their, their overall profits. Adrian Dimberline. I guess, I guess Conserve differed um, as, as an innovation project because we weren't looking at a, a small problem uh, for a, a, a set industry or, or a corporation or um, trying to fix one illness in in a, in a new and, and clever way this this was a this is a problem that is is global um, and working on a solution which can be used as, a, as an exemplar in the uk and sent internationally to help out when natural disasters do occur and, and they do happen frequently um, we, we read about them every other month um, the size and scale of, of what we were trying to achieve was, uh, I think, what sets this apart from other innovation projects. The scale and potential scope of Conserve is huge. Disasters unfortunately come in all shapes, sizes, scales and forms. Speaking with those responsible for tackling them has illuminated how the challenge of situational awareness extends across catastrophes of all kinds. And as Adrian and Robert suggested, the commercialisation opportunities for this kind of initiative are perhaps less obvious than more typical innovation projects. But there is of course still a very real incentive to reduce the physical, financial and human impact that floods can and do have. Cisco's Innovation Inside lead, William Wu, explains. So in the Conserve project, of course we have conducted the impact assessment which is predominantly to the understanding of the impact assessment on the economic effect. In, in the project. We, we, we utilise the existing practices from the environmental agency in the UK and looking at the direct and indirect benefits uh, within the sector 
and also to look at what could be the avoided damage cost, um, which can be influenced by the conserved solution as a whole. And with those information and research uh, in place, we, we would be able to start to develop what sort of the economic impact that conserve would have in the sector. And our analysis and, and calculations will be able to underpin the understanding and also the business conversations we will have with the, with the industrial leaders, with the, you know, the key stakeholders within the flooding sector. That includes everyone from local authorities to emergency service operators and insurers. Nick Christos is buoyant about the opportunities being explored by aid organisations too. So, so the project has completed now. The funding has has stopped, and the solution has been has been created. It has been evaluated from the Scottish Police, and uh, the British Red Cross at the moment is evaluating Conserve as a, as a potential uh, solution to be deployed in the future. Um, not every solution is our our next big product or our our next big market opportunity. Sometimes we have to build uh, these uh, these solutions uh, because it uh, it makes sense, and we are positioned in, we're in the right place to make it happen. So the conserve project is living up to its name. And in time, we'll see whether the two will be scaled up and adapted from flood prevention to all kinds of disaster scenarios all over the world. If you've been enjoying the series so far, then please do hit that subscribe button to make sure our next episode arrives with you safe and sound. You'll find us on iTunes, Acast, Stitcher, and all the usual podcast providers. And while you're out there, why not leave us a nice review? It'll help others find out about Macro 2. Until next time.